your host, Mia Schachter. I use they, them pronouns, and I'm a bit gender nebulous, which is a term that I made up, and you can use it if you like it. I'm an intimacy coordinator for TV and film, an embodied boundary guide for individuals and couples, and a consent educator. My interest in this work is mostly in consent, gender, and power dynamics. I offer Zoom classes live and for download through my website at sharetheloadinc.com. Yeah. <laughs> and that's Laurel. where you can find private sessions too. Um, if you could just, to get everything started, uh, introduce yourself, say a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah. Um, I'm Mia Schachter. I use they, them pronouns. This is my podcast. Um you are interviewing me today on my podcast, which is exciting for me. Um, I'm an intimacy coordinator for TV and film. Um, I also teach consent um, classes online and I take private clients as well. I do like private lessons and private sessions on consent and boundaries um, one-on-one with people one on two or three with people. Um, I'm toying with the term consent coordinator um, for like outside of intimacy coordination work uh, as like a thing to call myself. I've been calling myself a consent educator. Um, But yeah, I don't know of anyone else really doing what I'm doing. So I have no one to reference in terms of what to call myself. Um, I think that's about it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm a writer. I'm also a writer. Oh, uh, what kind of writing do you do? Um, I did playwriting, um, in my twenties in New York mostly. And, um, now I mostly write essays and stuff. I had, um, a couple pieces in Salty World recently and one in XBiz. Um, that's, yeah, other than, you know, attempts at screenwriting, that's, that's it. (laughs) And I'm also, I'm curious to hear you talk about the impulse or desire that led you to make this podcast. Mm, Honestly, the, the way that I really wanted a podcast, (laughs) this is goal is that I wanted to kind of have like a call-in advice show like a like a la Dan Savage um but but me so like my perspective and my um background and specifically really focused on talking about boundaries and consent so just kind of narrowing the lens a little bit um and I had, I had that idea, and then I was hanging out with some friends, uh, a married couple, who we, we ended up having a, having a conversation about, like, um, he was talking about how he always used to hate cleaning, and then when he got married and had to, like, share that responsibility, he really found a way to enjoy it. He found that he really loved it. It became kind of a ritual. It was cleansing and stuff like that. And so then we all got to talking about um, a podcast that would focus on sharing the labor in, in relationships. So that was like domestic 
labor, financial, emotional, manual, etc. In my mind, that wasn't like far off from this other idea. And and so I thought, well, maybe I should just do like a straightforward interview show with that theme in mind of like, how do we understand labor in our lives and how do we share that with other people? What is our responsibility? What is, you know, where are the limitations of that? And how do we go about negotiating that in our lives? Um, and then I wanted to do that and I kept kind of meeting people and thinking, oh, you'd be really good on this show. And I didn't have a studio and I didn't have an editor and I didn't really know anything. And then this is the part where it gets like really serendipitous. I was at Stories Bookstore Cafe before COVID. This was in like January, maybe February. And there was a a guy sitting next to me and he was writing a screenplay. And I kind of thought like, I don't know. I should I should be telling people like what I do and I'm 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 coming to this coffee shop to like be around people instead of do this work at my apartment. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the reason for this if not to like meet people? And I turned to him and I was like, "Hey, clearly I'm like looking at what's on your computer and I apologize for that privacy breach, but um I'm an intimacy coordinator, and if if you ever need one, there's not a lot of us in LA, so here's my card. And we we got to talking a little bit, and he started telling me about his friend who had a podcast, and that he does audio engineering work and video editing and stuff. And I was like, wait, hang on, I do. And he oh, and he like very clearly was like, if there's anything that I can do to like support what you're doing, I think it's great. Blah blah blah. And I was like, well, actually. <laughs> Yeah. And then like a week later, we were in the studio recording a show. And then two weeks later, everything shut down for COVID and it moved into like this Zoom space in my living room. Uh, Amazing that it can keep going. Yeah. And that this stuff can keep being shared. I mean, everything moving into these like audio sound waves. Yep. The invisible space. I know. It's getting very liminal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, there are some big words that seem to exist in your realm or multiple mm. realms that are represented by these big words, which are consent, intimacy, mm. labor, and yeah. perhaps if there was a diagram that was built in the middle, perhaps there would also be something that would like be holding the body. Yeah. It's all intersecting with this like... Uh, living with, navigating, intersecting bodies. And I'm curious to hear how you relate to these words, how they brush up against each other, how you see them in one another, Mm -hmm. if you do it all. Okay, the words were consent, intimacy, labor, labor, and then then the body in general. Okay. Yeah, the body. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. Okay, this is where I'm like, yes, Laurel, we both have like dance performance backgrounds. This makes so much sense. So cool. I'm actually going to start with the body. I really like this question. Uh, My whole life I've struggled with chronic illness gut stuff that was like not identified until a couple years ago. Do you mind sharing what you were diagnosed with? Yeah, I got my diagnosis last year, I think... I was diagnosed with five different things or like four slash five, which I'll explain. But the fact that I had all these different things 
was part of the reason why it had not been diagnosed before because it was like, what the fuck is this? Nobody knows. Mm-hmm. So it turned out that I had this MTHFR gene mutation, um, which I won't get too much into it, but basically like it's very common amongst Eastern European Jews. And it, it makes you prone, kind of like extra susceptible to inflammation, autoimmune, all those things that are kind of wrapped up together uh, in, in with like stress and uh, gut inflammation. So, okay, like genetically predisposed already. Mm-hmm. Then I was diagnosed with candida, which is a yeast or fungus or both. I'm not totally sure. And then I was diagnosed with what my doctor said was either one of or the most severe case of small intestine bacterial overgrowth that he'd ever seen. There's two different kinds of it. And a like negligible amount that you can live with and not do anything about is like parts parts per million 10 and under. And I had both of them at one was at 120 and one was at 140. And then the fourth thing slash fifth thing was that I had two parasites, one of which I know that I had had for like 10 or 12 years already. The way that this all happened, as I understand, is that I had that MTHFR gene mutation and then I was a C-section. I didn't breastfeed for very long as an infant. And then as a toddler, I had chronic ear infections and was on antibiotics just many, 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 many times as a toddler. So because of those epigenetic factors, there was a genetic factor and then those epigenetic factors, like my gut never fully developed. And so I was like predisposed to all, to the SIBO, to the candida and to the parasites. That's the, that's the body background. Yes. Okay. So as you can possibly imagine, after years and then decades of being really kind of uncomfortable and sickly and in pain and, you know, just all around like fragile, I guess. And the way that it was manifesting in me was like extreme fatigue and exhaustion. I was sleeping. Yeah, yeah that was going to be my next question. Like, did you feel, how were you feeling during all of this? Because all those words that you just described are, could be like external descriptors, but you might have in fact been like so in touch with some like grandiose potential of expression or like it felt like you had a lot of energy, but you had no way to actually access it or express it because of these other factors. Yeah, they were totally like dampering everything that I had, I think, to that I felt like I could offer the world. Like I I had a reputation for falling asleep like under desks in rehearsal or like at my desk in class. I had an acting teacher in college who like hated me and wrote me these like really terrible like evaluations because I what I was doing and I didn't realize this obviously. Well, first of all, in college like I would roll out of bed and go to class in my pajamas. I couldn't I couldn't get up before I absolutely had to. And then I would go to one class and then I would go to the like on-campus cafe, buy a bagel with cream cheese on it and then go and then eat it and in my other class. And I was like still in pajamas. And by this time it's like 11 in the morning. And then because I just ate a bagel and had no idea that like my body absolutely cannot digest a fucking bagel. Mm -hmm. I was falling asleep in class, Mm -hmm. like just sitting up trying to stay awake. 
that was that was the way that it was manifesting. My my first kiss. This is like really sad. I think I was like 15. I was at a, my best friend's part like party. Her mom was out of town and we had a party in Laurel Canyon and I probably ate pizza, drank beer, fell asleep on the couch in the middle of the living room. Like there's dozens of people. There's like blasting music and I'm passed out in the living room and um, I woke up to this guy kissing me and someone taking a Polaroid picture of it. But already like the meeting of intimacy, consent, body. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All of that moment. Yeah, totally. I hadn't thought about it that way. I think it so much of like the intersection of where my health and body stuff comes up against self-expression is in like intimacy and consent and stuff. I, I'm curious to, to hear if this even prior to being diagnosed, like these things were unconsciously or consciously guiding you towards assisting other people in their bodies beyond some mm. sort of medical care. Because the way right. that you're talking about people's bodies is so much about like how they feel or how they express themselves, whether it's on screen for a job or in their lives through like working with like consent one-on-one and things like that. So I'm curious that like everything that you're describing in terms of it, it all is stemming from like how you felt in these like deep internal illnesses that your body was trying to overcome in some way. But how does that then get externalized for yourself and then like, towards other people's bodies as well. Well, I'll start with myself because I think that was like, there was so much repression going on. There was Mm -hmm. so much ignoring my body. My body was screaming at me. I mean, by the time that I was willing to like, just kind of go to my parents and be like, I'm ready to exit the planet. I need your help. And you know, and they finally, they were like, do whatever you have to do. Like go to any doctor that you think is the right doctor for you. Like let's, we have to figure this out. I had spent so many years like telling my body, you know, like I'm in charge as though I am not my body. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. By doing that, I think, you know, I haven't tied this together until now, but there was this moment <laughs> There was this moment when I was 12 and I was preparing for my bat mitzvah that my dad came into my room to say goodnight. And he was like, there's something that I really, I need to talk to you about. I was like weeks out from my bat mitzvah in my memory. It might've been more like months, but he said, and I, I almost remember my mom like standing in the doorway. It's kind of fuzzy. My dad sat on my bed and he said, I want to tell you something um, because I want you to know I don't believe in God. And in that moment, I started sobbing. And even at the time, I was like, why am I crying? You know, like I was like, this isn't sad. I don't understand what's happening to me. What it was doing to me, I think, was it was like crushing my worldview in in a really, it was like he, it was like he pulled me out of the matrix. It was literally like he just like, like unjacked me from the matrix. And he was like, you have choice. Like what these people tell you is not necessarily true. Right. And like showing you agency also through rejection while preparing you for acceptance. (laughs) Oh my God. He was teaching me no. Ooh, I like that. 
So that moment is like, I attribute so much to that moment because it instilled in me what I think is so healthy for a kid, which is the questioning and the challenging of authority and the questioning your teachers and being like, where are you getting this information? Do you believe this? Is this an allegory or is this real? Like being able to even ask those questions was what kind of like rained down on me in that moment. And I think so much of like my health and healing has not come from not come from a doctor. In fact, I would say I've been more traumatized than I've been served by doctors. It's been so much about understanding like the systems that control why I am the way I am, why I feel the way I feel and why I believe what I believe. So when I'm like now currently treating myself for what's going on with me, I'm looking pretty far and wide for stuff. Like I'm not taking prescriptions anymore. I'm listening to my body. I'm understanding that like sugar is basically capitalism incarnated. (laughs) And literally because there's a sugar lobby in the government that's like fighting to continue to exploit people so that they can not pay for labor. So yeah, like coming coming to every teaching from that moment on with like a a skepticism and knowing that I can choose to believe it or not I can form my own opinion about it totally has affected like my approach to healing and also to consent Mm -hmm. oh but to your question I think I had spent so long rejecting my body telling it that it was wrong and that I needed it to like obey me that the repair that needed to start before I could help anyone else was really making clear to my own body, I hear you, I am caring for you, and I'm sorry. Like, I'm grateful to you, and I'm sorry that I ignored you for so long. Yeah, do you mind sharing some practices or rituals that you do do? Because that also sounds like Mm -hmm. you're then engaging in an intimacy practice Mm -hmm. with yourself. Yeah, I've been working on that not having much intimacy with others at the moment or for the last (laughs) like nine months. Yeah, I have a a reminder on my phone every day that says check in with my gut. And it's funny to admit this here, but I often ignore it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when I don't ignore it, I just take a moment and like put my hands on my gut and I'm like, And I close my eyes and I really ask it, what, like, how are you feeling today and what can I do for you? I also do that when I'm trying to choose food. So instead of like what used to happen, which was like, I just want something sweet at any and every moment. And as we now know, sugar is basically a narcotic, like it it triggers the same stuff in your brain as um, opium or heroin. So... I had to like wean myself off sugar quite in it like as though I was addicted. I think I probably was. And now I'm able to go like, what do you want to eat? And my body's pretty clear with me. Um, I do write in my journal every morning, first thing in the day. And I always try to write, how do I feel this morning? And to steer clear of like, well, yesterday this happened and this happened and I had a dream like this, but rather to be like, how do I feel today? And there's other things like I, I am very aware of 
changes in my poop. I check out my poop every time I poop. Mm -hmm. This is like now making me think of a whole new list of words, which is (laughs) how um, is how the unknown plays a role, meaning like the intuition. Okay. Um, it seems to be playing a role in this communication, which yeah. it seems to also be. It's all inwardly and outwardly. Sub, yes, inwardly and outwardly. And then something that you just said. Time. How time plays a role in all of this. Like you sitting down in the morning and not looking back or looking forward, but looking at the present moment but then trying to understand also with this body journey, all this like past or even what you're talking about, like ancestral, mm-hmm. so much time creating a single moment, which is the present. And then perhaps perceiving a future body, which is what? Do you have a future body? Do you have a goal inside of all of this of how you perceive your body will be or want it to be with all this work? Yeah, I'm going to answer that last one first because it ties into the rituals question. I do try to do um, like positive visualizations about what my gut could look like. There's this um, like beautiful meditation garden in Mount Washington called the Self-Realization Fellowship. And last year I spent a lot of time sitting in there imagining that my gut looked like this garden Mm -hmm. um like lush and green like this garden so there are rituals like uh or maybe not maybe practices of like going for a walk as though i'm healed like past tense because Um, i do i do actually believe just as like with addiction People are always in recovery. Like, I'm always going to be in the process of healing. I don't think that I'm ever going to be healed. I think there will be a time in my life when I can... I don't think there will ever actually be a time in my life where I don't have to be, like, very, very specific and conscious about what I eat. Um, And I probably will always have to take a certain number of pills every day. But I think there will be a time where it's not, like, to this extent. Where I can, like, move through the world with significantly more ease than I do right now, but going for a walk and thinking like, how would I walk if I were healed? How would I breathe if I were healed? How would I look at this tree differently if I were healed, you know? And that, I think that's something that the the goal is like more ease, less. If you want to work with me privately, I am taking new clients for 2021 and you can find that on my website in the work with me privately tab. You'll be prompted to schedule your call and then fill out a form so I can get to know you a little bit better. Now, if you become a member on Patreon, you get to join me in ongoing learning and self-study. I will be posting my own thoughts and media that I find and dissecting it through the lens of consent and boundaries. I'll be posting journal prompts, mindfulness exercises, assignments, uh, and all kinds of other stuff, including the Venn diagrams. So if you're interested in that, it's running on a sliding scale. So no matter how much you pay, you get the same content. And it also supports the show. It helps us keep going.
And what does ease feel like to you or look like to you? Well, that's a good question. So like one of the things that takes a lot of time and kind of a lot of a lot more emotional energy than than physical energy is that I have to uh, I have to take a lot of pills every day. Like somewhere in the now I think it's in the like t- range of 25 a day. There have been times when it's been down to I think 16 and then times when it's been up to almost 40. So this is like a middle range and it feels reasonable to me. What I appreciate about these not being, so my doctor tells me to take these, like they're not prescriptions because they are, I mean, that just goes back to capitalism and like the pharmaceutical industrial complex and like the way that, um, you know, you insurance companies will only cover medications that are they will only cover pharmaceuticals and pharmaceutical companies get loads and loads of money to test these things and they lobby Congress so that they can be, you know, be what they are in the world and people make lots and lots and lots of money off of them. What people do not test is a lot of the stuff that I take, which is like herbs, um, vitamins, minerals, you know, tinctures, powders, etc. They're things that are like FDA approved for me to consume, but they're not uh, meant for, or they're they are meant for. But but the government does not put its stamp of approval on these things. Um, so I ended up I end up paying so much money out of pocket. So those are two two big things. One is that my healthcare because it is not what what insurance companies consider like reasonable for them to be liable for um my healthcare is so unbelievably expensive i spend more a month on like on my healthcare than i do on rent mm-hmm. um and then the second thing was like this example of the pills that i have to sort in the morning and like lay out, you know, these are like before a meal, these are with the meal, these are before the meal, with the meal, before the meal, with the meal, before bed. So just that amount of like having to consider that stuff, having to leave the time, leave the money, uh, like budget my resources around those things. More ease would look like not having to do as much of that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Creating space. Yeah, more space. More space. Or offloading and... it somehow. Mm-hmm. Outsourcing in <laughs> yeah, some way, like you if mean? Maybe afford one day to, like, pay someone to do it for me. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that would be, that would be well, if I had the money flexibility to then be like, yeah, I just don't, I don't want this to be on my plate every day. Mm-hmm. Can you do it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so then I'm curious about how the intuitive, like bringing bringing these I words in the intimacy, the intuitive, how do they play a role inside of the problem solving, mm. the healing, or even yeah. like the agitation? Yeah. Well. The, the intimacy thing is really fascinating to me because it has been 
intimacy building with myself in a in a few ways one is that I do literally talk to my gut and um you know I have to like repair our relationship because I was basically abusive to it Mm -hmm. for all my life Mm -hmm. um so like building trust there so that my gut doesn't feel like it needs to scream so loudly to get my attention um a lot of that feels very intimate and it has a lot to do with slowing down and really listening which of course comes into play with consent and knowing your boundaries and knowing what your desires are um being able to say no on behalf of my gut like it's often very hard for me to say no for myself Mm -hmm. um like we were just talking about how hard it was for me to say I'm taking last week off and then being like well I can schedule this meeting and you know like those are Mm -hmm. boundaries that I let myself push I do not push my guts boundaries anymore and I often have to advocate on behalf of my gut to other people you know I'm at or like at a restaurant or at someone's house or whatever it is um so Finding that no for my body has been huge in being able to advocate for myself emotionally too. Mm-hmm. And the the intimacy, or not the intimacy, the intuition piece is, um, and this is something that kind of came up for me this past week and I actually did a session with Brooke and they were super helpful in helping me expand this idea outward. Um, I saw a doctor this week, um, an integrative GI specialist who was like, I want you to carefully loosen up your diet because it, you, you, I want you to eat what feels good. I don't want you to do these like really restrictive diets to like kill the SIBO, kill the candida, just, Mm -hmm. you know, take that stress off yourself, stop searching for a little while and just like be with it and eat what feels good. And I left thinking, okay, eat what feels good. That is really different from eat whatever I want. Mm -hmm. Those are two incredibly different things. Eating what feels good is very intuitive and it requires me to really listen and slow down. And, um, you know, eating may take a lot longer. It might take a lot longer to cook or to find what I want. Um, but eating whatever I want, like I want a croissant and hot chocolate and, you know, s'mores and shit. But that's my, that's my drug brain. That's like literally my, like, you know, the addict piece of my brain being like sugar, 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 sugar. So the intuition piece is like learning to parse out the difference between do whatever you want versus do what feels good. Um, and what Brooke helped me really think about is like being, uh, um, is applying that kind of philosophy to the people that I have in my life and like the situations that I seek out, the relationships that I seek out and the collaborations that I seek out. Like um, I might want to work with someone, but when we get together, it doesn't really feel quite right. Um And then I have to look at the reasons why I want to work with them. Do I want to work with them? Because I think that they um, have an audience that I don't have access to. And, and, um, you know, that would help 
me expand um, my reach and possibly get some people to sign up for classes with me, you know, like, and that's often this scarcity mindset because I don't have a lot of income right now. So like, you know, that, and so again, like that's how that all ties in with capitalism. The do whatever you want thing is this very like capitalistic approach, I think. The do what feels good is, is, I don't want to put a label of like a political ideology on it, though I have one that comes to mind. Um, I think it's a lot more about like the going internal, like what feels good here? What feels good to us? Who do I want in this small group, this community with me? Um, not in an exclusionary way, but in a like curated way because I'm looking out for my own health and safety. Yeah. Well, it also sounds like there's a specificity going on because it isn't just about like, I need to have enough to have as much as I want or to have more without question. It's about being um, discerning and having a critical mind so that you know what you need and how much of that you need and not more just, and then when I have this much, I am sated or I am at my capacity. And then if I do have more, how can I share that with others? Me having enough, how do I then interact with others? It's, it's not, I just need a ton. Right. More, 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 more. Just in case. Yeah. So that I can sit on this little mountain of my goods and it makes me taller than everyone else. It's right. And I can reach down and I can hand out one thing at a time to everyone beneath me. Right. It's the like, I know what I need. I understand the ways in which I can get that and my options, but I'm also understanding how that then plays into like a larger economy that then becomes bountiful, but that because it includes other people. Absolutely. Well, this economy idea that you've now talked Mm -hmm. about, or like you're talking about right now, also then like playing into the idea of laboring Hmm. and how to labor and when you labor. And also then you talking about like taking a week off and that's not because you need to be working all the time to make money, even though maybe in inside of like a concept, you do need to be working to be making money, but what does it mean to not work so that you can work to make money? Yeah. These ideas as well. Yeah. The rest piece has been huge. Like with COVID, I, my productivity has shot through the roof because I'm someone who will schedule things until there is no more time in the day and then very often will continue to work outside of that on various other things so like what I've learned to do with COVID is actually hold my own boundaries and to be like I work I work from 10 to 6 and I take a lunch Mm -hmm. break Mm -hmm. and um there's like a few exceptions that I will make for things that were set up before I made those hours. So like I do sometimes have a 930 meeting every Monday and I do every Wednesday have an appointment that goes to 630 instead of six. But I am like now budgeting my time so carefully so that I have built in periods of time for rest and space. And that's not, and then I try to like very seriously be like, okay, it's six o'clock. I'm not working anymore. I'm also really working on uh, like re, like shifting what my idea of work is because it was brought to my attention recently that the 40 hour work week was designed for 
men who had stay-at-home wives, like full-time doing the cooking, cleaning, shopping, errands, and child-rearing. Like, I don't have children, but I do have a home that I have to clean. I have to cook my own food. I have to do my own grocery Mm -hmm. shopping. Mm -hmm. I have to clean Mm -hmm. my cat's litter. I have to blah, blah, blah. And so accounting for that within a 40-hour work week, accounting for things that I have to do for my health that are not things that feel restful to me and putting those inside my workday, allowing myself to go to doctor's appointments on workdays. Like when you work mm-hmm. for someone else, you get to go to the doctor during your workday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm running my life in a way where like, if I have to go to the doctor on Friday and acupuncture and I have some, and therapy, then I'm working all day Saturday. And then I don't actually have a day off. So I really, I really had to hunker down and consider what are these boundaries for me? How much do I need in terms of income, rest, food? One of the big decisions that I had to make was like, I, I can't be living with my parents. Mm-hmm. I, I moved in with them at the beginning of COVID. And I, I was like, that's just not something that's going to be sustainable for me. Yeah, being able to um, like build that in so that it's not an afterthought mm-hmm. then actually makes me better at my job. Mm-hmm. 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 Right, because you're not trying to do everything at once or try to like navigate not having anything and therefore not knowing where you are inside of anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the the most recent choice that I've made was like to raise my private session uh, rates because meant that I needed to accept any potential client. And one thing is that I, I don't want to accept every potential client. Like I'm not a good fit for every potential client. And having that really, really low rate made me feel this sense of like desperation. If someone approached me, I was like, yeah, great. I can fit you in here and here and here and here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also have come to discover I cannot do more than two private sessions in a day without starting to not really be able to fully show up for somebody. So what that means is that I'm only going to have six private clients at a time and I'm going to charge more money for it because um, that's the, like, that's the one-on-one time, you know, if, if that, I, I have this amazing business coach and she helped me understand that like I was offering every single thing in my business on a sliding scale instead of seeing that my entire business is set up on a sliding scale. Like I have a ton of free content and then I have a Patreon where you can pay $5 a month and get like a lot of stuff from, from me and, and, um, sort of like guided self-study and then I have classes which are more more expensive than the patreon and that's a group scenario and then if you're seeing me one-on-one it's this amount of money every hour um because that's very limited so being able to understand that really started to let me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. see the ways that I am not budgeting time for myself Mm-hmm. 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 
Um, so my next question is about, I mean, everything that you've just talked about is so complex and like attending to it and nurturing yourself and nurturing your body and nurturing your work life, living life, rest life, creative life. I mean, it's like complex systems have been put in order and that's all for you. And I'm curious to hear about how like taking and forgive me if I'm incorrect, like taking probably what a lot of this stuff you've learned and like bringing it into a work environment and then navigating it with other people and with their own situations or lives or needs or requirements. What has that taught you through just, you know, experiencing it through someone Hmm. else's uh, life? Well, one thing that I've found with like all the people that I've been working with, um, this is outside of intimacy coordination for TV. This is like the, the share the load work that I do. Um, Mm -hmm. One thing, which I kind of already knew, but was like seriously confirmed is that pretty much everyone has been sexually assaulted. I think that's something that we, we act like there's like this, that there are accurate statistics about sexual assault and that like Mm -hmm. sexual assault looks this one particular way. But I, yeah, I mean, there's so much sexual assault going on and like we're so, so what's sort of come out of that for me a bit and not just the sexual assault, but the way that we talk about like abuse and harm or abuse, um, like abusers and victims as though there's like these Mm -hmm. two groups of people in the world. Mm -hmm. There's not, we're all abusers and we've, we're all victims. Like we've all been emotionally manipulative. We've all yelled at somebody. We've all done something for our own benefit without accounting for how it was going to affect somebody else. So there's like a huge spectrum of what is considered abuse, but we continue to talk about abuse as though there's like people who cause abuse and people who suffer from abuse. So that's something that's been pretty eye-opening to me. You had said, can you say the question again? Yeah, I'm just curious to know um, what you've discovered or learned or been shown just by sharing mm. all this work that you've done and everything that you've learned through um, how you're teaching or working with other clients or people. Yes. Okay. So the other really big thing that I think is so important is that the the soy the, the like main toxin that we have interpersonally, mm-hmm. I would even go so far as to say as a society or yeah is insecurity. Mm-hmm. Insecurity is what causes so much harm from what I can tell. It's when, and it, and that insecurity comes from trauma. It comes from prior experience. It comes from any number of things. So it's not like just be more confident and you'll be less shitty person. That's not what I believe. Mm-hmm. What I'm, what I'm seeing more and more and, and, and the lesson that I learn over and over because I catch myself acting out of insecurity and later being like, fuck, that was not the person that I wanted to be that day, you know? Um, Whether it's insecurity from like finances, scarcity, insecurity because I'm afraid that someone thinks I'm stupid or doesn't like me or doesn't want to be my friend or doesn't want to work with me. You know, whatever these reasons are, I am the worst version of myself when I'm acting from a place of insecurity. And so so much of the work that I've been doing, whether it's been like with activation, 
with actors, with directors, with dancers, with porn performers, like everybody and with private clients is like what we're all dealing with is is truly an epidemic of of insecurity that is like wreaking havoc on us. And for me, mm-hmm. like the way that I see like the roots of that insecurity, those insecurities are largely invented by people who want to sell us stuff and then reinforced mm-hmm. by those same like marketing tactics by the by the media mm-hmm. by movies mm-hmm. tv mm-hmm. art so much of what we are insecure about is we are insecure about it because someone told us that that it was something wrong like it's not something that we are born insecure about like we learn insecurity it also leads mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. judge judgment like being judgmental to hatred of other people it leads to othering self-comparison it leads to all these really mm-hmm, terrible jealousy mm-hmm. like horrible things mm-hmm. so what i work with like and it's okay i'm i'm now like i'm really really careful when i talk about this stuff to make sure that it's clear that like i am not teaching these things because I have figured it out and I don't do them anymore. And I'm mm-hmm. super mm-hmm. human at these things. I teach these things because the framing and what I've learned to see things this way, I think is really valuable and helpful to people. And I've seen it be really helpful to people. But I then sometimes move through the world stumbling, like when my, you know, when the t- really awful like white lady who lives in me comes out of nowhere and I'm like what are you doing here Mm -hmm. you know and I just say something and I'm Mm -hmm. like Jesus Mm -hmm. after the fact like trying to find compassion for that scary white lady inside of me trying to find compassion for like the insecure kid in me trying to find compassion for those those moments um but I'm I'm just I'm very like hyper aware of that because I think that I've seen it happen where where I then falter or like I don't practice consent at a in a place where it doesn't occur to me and then people go mm-hmm. you of all people shouldn't be doing that and I'm like well yeah you're yeah. correct I'm learning mm-hmm. 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 yeah and some the the first word that I thought of when you said the word insecurity is yeah. fear how in, and I was curious to hear or I'm curious to hear how you differentiate insecurity and fear Mm. and then the other word I thought of was shame when you were listing all those words I thought of fear and shame and are you thinking of it as insecurity being the the seed or the starting point that then births these other these more like reactionary or internalized or expressed emotions Mm. Maybe maybe I'm thinking of insecurity as like the kind of umbrella term or like the big the mm. big you know if it's one of those brainstorm maps where it's like um mm-hmm. like insecurity is the big thing in the middle and then there's like these offshoots from it and you've got like shame, guilt, self-comparison, judgment, jealousy, fear, um a lot of anxiety. But yeah, I think when I use the word insecurity, I'm talking like, oh, yeah, and self-esteem would be in there too. Mm-hmm. I think I'm thinking of it as mm-hmm. kind of like the the larger term. And then there's like 
offshoot terms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Inside of all of this, this is like a brief shift in a different direction, but I'm curious to hear where or how or when do you find pleasure? Hmm. How does pleasure exist in your life? Oh, that's a great question. It's something that I've done a lot of thinking about over the last several months. And especially like with this period of celibacy, um, like what does pleasure look like and, you know, finding other forms of it. Not that I think that all pleasure, even most pleasure is sexual pleasure, but that's, you know, finding that self-intimacy, like getting intimacy needs met, getting touch needs met, like mm -hmm. having to find that with myself and having to find it with my cats, <laughs> like mm -hmm. with other tactile things. The pleasure that I, I love dancing. I love playing guitar. I like going for walks in my neighborhood. I really do love cooking like making stew mm -hmm. there's something that I just absolutely love about I love my slow cooker mm. and like figuring <laughs> out what I'm going to put in this stew and then putting it all in the thing and leaving it for like six hours you know making it in the morning and then at 7 p.m I have this like really beautiful fresh pot of stew and then just eating it until I can't possibly eat anymore mm. <laughs> <laughs> sounds amazing i got really caught up in that that slow cooker fantasy i was like yeah oh it's great if you don't have a slow cooker yeah i, I don't highly recommend them that plus your that whole is... house smells like stew like all day it's great <laughs> you can get them for pretty cheap too it's true it's true i see them and i'm always like is this the day i haven't yet reached it but I'm sure. I'm sure it's around the corner. <laughs> it's there when you're ready. Yeah, definitely. Is there anything is there anything else that you feel like you want to say? Is there anything? Well, I I originally had wanted to talk about um like how people can actually share the load of chronic illness and oh, yeah. kind, this kind of stuff Let's like talk with their about friends. It. I think what what I've come up against so much is like is pity meaning p people pitying you when you say that you have a chronic illness or talk yeah, try to talk or, about some aspect of it Yeah like I'll give a really extreme example there was this I was I ended up I was like at a party this was a, over a year ago I was at a party and I happened to be going to the same show as this person that I met at the party. And parking near this show was terrible. And so we decided to drive together. And he, so we were like waiting in line for the show and there was an ice cream place um, like right across from where we were standing. And he was like, I'm gonna get some ice cream and I'm, I can't eat dairy um, at all. And I really shouldn't eat refined sugar. And I say shouldn't because yes, my doctors have told me not to, but also because when I have 
eaten refined sugar in like quantities like an ice cream, um, I end up really fucked up in my gut Mm -hmm. for like at least Mm -hmm. a day. So I don't eat it anymore. And uh, this guy was like, I was like, oh, I'm considering like the vegan ice cream. And he was like, yeah, get it. Treat yourself. Treat yourself. And I was like, mm, I, I really shouldn't. Um, or wait, how did this go? No, it wasn't the, I didn't, I didn't mention the vegan ice cream. I just said, I, I really shouldn't. I really shouldn't. Knowing in my mind that if I was going to get any, it would be the vegan option. Um, and I was like, no, I really shouldn't. I really shouldn't. Uh, and he was like, come on, come on. You know, duh. and I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't eat dairy. And his face went blank and he said to me, I would literally kill myself. (laughs) So I get that on like, you know, on a wide scale. A lot of people being like, oh my God, you you mean you can't, so wait, you can't eat, you can't eat bread. Does that mean you can't eat pasta? Does that mean you can't eat, um, whoa, like pizza, beer? Oh my God, you can't drink beer? Like, that's the kind of thing that I get a lot of. And then also with people that I'm, like, really good friends with who even know where, like, I've, my, I'll, at Thanksgiving one year, I was like, um, can you just tell me what's in this thing? Like, just, uh, just so I know what the ingredients are. And, and my aunt starts listing them off and she says butter. And I was like, oh, okay. Okay, cool. Thanks. And she's like, oh, no, Mia, I'm so sorry. I'm mm. so sorry. I'm, mm. oh, my God, I wish I'd set some aside for you. I'm so sorry. And I don't, I don't want people's pity. I see pity as, like, yet another form of judgment. Mm-hmm. It do, I don't need you to apologize to me. Like, Well, and both of those examples are also the people making it about them, yeah, not about ooh, you. Yeah, good point. You know, yeah. it's like back to the insecurity thing. Like they don't, and perhaps more because they don't know, which plays into pity. And so they're just tapping into how they feel and turning it into how you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a really good point. It is. It's very self-centering. I've I've also had very positive experiences of people like accommodating me and not making me feel like they're accommodating me not making Mm. me feel like they're doing work to accommodate me I had I had a friend at her birthday party the night before her own birthday she texted me and said tell me what you're eating right now and like what kind of sweeteners you can have and I was like I mean I I just teared up I was like Mm -hmm. I can, I just can't, I can't eat gluten and dairy uh, and I can't eat refined sugar. I can eat eggs, um, like maple's great, honey's great. And she was like, okay, cool. Which sounds better to you, vanilla, chocolate, or carrot? And I was like, chocolate. And then I got to her fucking birthday party and I was able to eat the birthday cake. Those moments to me are so amazing. If someone just asks me questions, I find that so, so, so helpful. Yeah, it's the questions. I think it's it's also like when people, when people sort of try to over relate, mm-hmm. um, like my mom often will be like, well, what did you eat today? And I'll say, well, I had this and it had this in it. She's like, well, when I eat too much of that, I also get gassy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've had to now really talk to her like, 
mom, what you're dealing with when you get gassy is not what I'm dealing with. When you say that you also have the same response to a certain kind of food, one, I guarantee you that's not true. And two, it sounds like you don't really believe me. Yeah, like when I get, when I burp, yeah, like when, it always feels good when I burp, like the air gets to go out. I'm like, you have no idea what it's like to burp constantly like every couple seconds for hours Mm -hmm. hours and hours Mm -hmm. so that that over relating thing yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, just to say that this also feels like it again goes back to this insecurity thing not because necessarily well maybe on some level subconsciously like you wanting to share an experience about your body because one when do we talk about bodies almost Mm -hmm. never creates an insecurity on some level but more just in that way of how we've been taught to process our surroundings and our experiences is through comparison. And so instead of allowing your experience to just be the thing that it is and for the listening partner to be like, I'm hearing you and to, to not like create reality by saying, and now I'll share a story so that you know that I was listening to you, which secretly is negating your experience. It's just like, communication styles and yeah like how do we how do we encourage support uphold one another it isn't about the sameness right this like this kind of like faulty perception of equality the equality right. is through letting you <laughs> have the floor say yeah. your experience and someone saying like oh well either asking a question or just letting it be right right what's what's coming up for me is like I think it's worth pointing out that I also have that impulse towards mm-hmm. other people mm-hmm. and I recognize that impulse and I'm striving to continue to like stop it before it actually comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, like an example of me doing that to somebody was um, a, a really good friend of mine um, who's a, a trans woman was like ta- telling me this story about how like her dress got stuck in her underwear. And so, you know, like her, her, but was out when she was in a public place. And I was like, oh my God, I've done that. I, I've done that. It's so horrible. Mm-hmm. And she was like, and I'm trans. Like, it's a different thing. It's mm-hmm. a different thing. Mm-hmm. And so my instinct to like empathize and be like, yes, me too. I know what you're talking about mm-hmm. was actually very unvalidating mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. of her experience as mm-hmm. being unique from mine. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not at all ever being like, don't do that thing. I, I don't do that thing. You know, mm-hmm, I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sharing that that's something that it's an impulse that I completely understand. And I think it's worth examining when and where we do that and why. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and understanding that it isn't just the automatic response. Right. There is, yeah, there are subtleties. Yeah. It's been quite a journey. And and I think, as you've noticed, like all these things, all these words, all these themes are so inextricably linked for me. They just, they none of them stand alone. Yeah. I mean, I keep just seeing wheels and Venn diagrams. Yeah. And I mean, they're three-dimensional to even like call mm-hmm. it a circle. They're like orbs mm-hmm. that you're moving around and they sometimes merge or they get juggled or they're just kind of floating in space. That, that's the image I'm having of you describing all these different aspects of 
you're being, you're working, you're doing, you're thinking, consulting. Yeah. There's uh, someone gave me a really good metaphor that I wish I could remember who told me this. They were saying that actually someone else, it was, I think it was like Nora Ephron or something who wrote like Sleepless in Seattle and mm-hmm. um, talked about, so someone out there taught, used this metaphor of like, you know how we talk about like juggling balls in the air. Like mm-hmm. I'm juggling so many balls right now. Mm-hmm. Some of those balls are plastic and some of those balls are glass. Mm-hmm. And so it's, so sometimes it's, you, you are going to drop a ball. Mm-hmm. Like it's not mm-hmm. a matter of like, I have to keep the ball in the air. It's like, which balls can I drop right now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so f- for me, like my health, that's a glass ball. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I used to treat it like it was practic- p- plastic and just like smash it out of the air and be like, fuck you. <laughs> you weren't just dropping it. You were like slapping no, yeah, it. Yeah, I was like actively like taking a racket and being like, fuck you. It's like dented. Yeah, it like makes a hole in the floor. Yeah, exactly. No more. Yeah, bye. <laughs> All right. Well, shall we with the sharing of sharing of your three influences, Mia? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've never been on the receiving end of this question and I like it. So, all right. One of them is definitely the wheel of consent. Betty Martin's wheel of consent completely changed my life. It completely changed how I think I talk to people, how I... Can I ask, how did you find it? Oh, it's, I wish I could tell you, like several people have been like, have you heard of the Wheel of Consent? And I kept being like, you know, someone else asked me about that. I don't know. And then there was one day, um, I guess it was like almost two years ago already, where I, um, I had like dedicated the entire day to just kind of like self edification like Mm -hmm. personal education Mm -hmm. um and so I went on I had like YouTube videos that I wanted to watch like lectures you know reading I was gonna do etc documentary and stuff like that and then one of them was I was gonna finally look up this wheel of consent thing Mm -hmm. and I watched a video on it on YouTube I started watching it I found Betty Martin explaining it and we're now in touch she took my class at activation um so I found this video of her teaching it. It's like 45 minutes. And I watched about 20 minutes of it. And I was like, this makes sense. This tracks. This is interesting. And about halfway through, she connects something. And my bra- it was like, it was equivalent, nearly equivalent in a, in a way to that moment of my dad telling me he didn't believe in God. Mm-hmm. Where it just... Have you ever had a mo- like? I mean, I'm sure. Oh yeah, that just have, like opens. Like, boom. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Where I was like, this is so expansive to my brain. My brain does not know what to do with itself right now. Right. It's the asking of like, am I ready? I guess so because yes. it's happening. But it's oh it. my god, I can't stop it! But <laughs> yeah. it's oh. right. So that's what was happening, and I ended up being like, holy shit! And I started it over, and I started taking notes, which actually I think I, oh my gosh, I think they're right here. I 
let me see if I can find like the first time that I saw the wheel of consent notes. Um, and I can put a picture online. But so it was so groundbreaking. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> yes, look at that. Yeah. So this is the first time that I learned about the wheel of consent. Just That's inspiration. That looks like inspiration to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and I, I like, I drew so many errors. And then it goes on to the next page with like Beautiful. footnotes. Like I literally was like writing in <laughs> one, two, three, and then like explaining them elsewhere. And it just, it just split my mind open. So the wheel of consent, highly recommend life-changing concept. Um, the second thing, these are out of chronological order, but the second thing is, is Rent the Musical. Mm. Rent was super formative for me, and I can hear, like, groans from some people listening to this and being like, <laughs> It's something that only, like, pretty close friends know about me, I think, which is always funny and surprising to me. I absolutely love musicals. I think they're, like, the highest art form on the planet. Like, I, I absolutely love them. It is a dream of mine. To, I'm actually co-writing a musical right now, and I, a dream of mine, sincerely, to, to produce a musical one day. And when, when Rent came out, I was, like, seven, mm-hmm. and uh, my parents were just, you know, credit to them, they were playing that soundtrack in the car for, for me and my sister, I was, I continued to be really into it, seven, eight, nine, um, and I still revisit it. It was really formative for me because I think of the, like, the queer narratives that we were not hearing at the time. They were truly revolutionary at the time. The drug narratives, like, any interest that I have now in, like, addiction, um, you know, how that works in our brain, um, uh, they also, like, they were a group of artists, you know, like, mm-hmm. filmmakers, performers, stripper, yeah. musicians. Bohemian, yeah. right? La Boheme, yeah. Yes. I mean, it's based on, it's based on the, the opera La Boheme. Yes. Um, yeah, La Vie Boheme. Have you ever seen it performed live? No, or the Rent. Rent. Yeah, I saw Rent when I was, like, nine years old nice. um, in L.A. when it came here with, uh, with Neil Patrick Harris. Um, and I have an original shirt from the, like, 90s traveling show. Yeah, everything about Rent. Like, the, the music, too. Like, any music. It was really formative in terms of the music that I then ended up listening to and being interested in. Um, and the themes still pervade my life. Like, sexuality, gender, you know, um, queerness, mm-hmm. uh, like AIDS was something, HIV and AIDS and the the epidemic in the early 90s, late 80s, like that is a theme that for whatever reason, like when I see content about HIV and AIDS, like I just start crying. It is mm-hmm. so embedded in my, in my DNA and in my blood that like for whatever reason, I just break down um, around that topic. So rent was really formative for me. It also, I think, in terms of like, who am I and mm-hmm. what kind of adult do I want to be? And not just them as characters, but also like, do I want to perform? Do I want to do music? Like, who do I want to be 
when I grow up, do I want to be involved in the theater? And yes, I do want to be involved in the theater. And, you know, how do I want to make art and how do I want to express myself and mm-hmm. all that? I also have two cats yeah. um, right here. I saw some ears. Yeah. <laughs> They're both sleeping. So, okay, rent. Ugh, it means so much to me. The third thing, which is funny because I, I didn't know what my third thing was until like right before we started this. Um, being ill Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. has so completely shaped how I move through the world and how I view the world, um, how I mew the world, Mm -hmm. um, mew through the world. How you mew the world. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for that. It, it has... Like, everything that I know about trauma is, like, through the lens of my own um, healing and also, like, has so much to do with my work. So everything that I'm doing, like, for work and everything that I'm doing for my health, they they just they just complement each other and they elevate each other. Um, and, and being sick, really, it has made me so much more compassionate toward other people um it keeps me in check from like judging people to people um based on what I can see from the outside like one of the privileges within what I'm dealing with is that it is invisible um and also that the way that it has manifested in my body like because it manifests the other way in a lot of people's bodies in my body it has made me really thin my Mm -hmm. body is malnourished it doesn't you know as I was growing up like wasn't absorbing nutrients and that's why I am as small as I am and of course that's something that is privileged in our society so being being sick and seeing things through this lens has um kept has gotten me to think the way that I do in terms of like the systems at play you know for my body it's like the medical industry the agricultural industry um the like the way that medicine is for profit um the way that medic medicine uh i don't like to say western medicine but colonial medicine industrial medicine like splits us our mind from our bodies as though they're two separate things the way that it tries to um bandage symptoms instead of treat causes like not looking at the whole person you know all all those things like play into this underlying thread of like challenging authority mm-hmm. and and also um making sure that my kind of political philosophy pervades all areas of my life like i'm not just careful about what i'm putting in my body i'm very careful about like where the money is going if i'm going to be spending it on Mm -hmm. this kind of thing like i'm going to buy it directly from farmers and i'm going to do my best to make sure that i'm also not then putting more chemicals in my body which means that i'm buying Mm -hmm. certain kinds Mm -hmm. of produce and certain kinds of meat there's so much about it that's like really stressful that i wish i didn't have to deal with it and yet i can't really talk about it without talking about how grateful i am for for the experience of it it's it's Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds eye-opening. Yeah. It's been an eye-opening yeah. experience. Yeah. It, the, the fact that I have to be always mindful and aware of my body is mm-hmm. like, like 
I feel like most of us, most people get away with not listening a lot of the time because their body's not really screaming at them. It's just kind of like, you know, hey. But Mm -hmm. my Mm -hmm. body was screaming so loudly at me that I am now, as you've said, like in very intimate communication with my body at all times. And that it's just a different kind of moving through the world from, from what I had experienced when I was trying to make my body shut up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well put. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, Laurel, you think you're going to start your own podcast now? <laughs> it's fun, right? Yeah, talking to people about how they're living and thinking and feeling is is a beautiful experience. Like, it was a moving experience. I mean, this was a great experience. It, being interviewed was a great experience. It's like, oh, I have, there is an arena that allows me to, like, express myself in an articulate way. Yeah. It's like, oh, how empowering. Right? Yeah. Wow, I sound <laughs> smart sometimes. I say things and I'm like, yeah. oh, that was. Yeah, just got to own it. Yeah. Put a period at the end of that yep. sentence. Not, Not a question, a question mark. mark. <laughs> All right. Well, All thanks, right. Laurel. Cool. I'm going to stop this recording now. Of course. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Consent Wizard. The show is produced and edited by Stella Hartman. Beginning and ending music is a collaboration between me and my guitar teacher, who goes by Sophia Bolt. The music in the middle is by Tyler Fjeld. The podcast logo is by Candace Ploy Goodman. For contact info for these exceptionally talented people or to ask a question about boundaries and consent that I'll answer on the show, you can email podcast at sharetheloadinc.com.